Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. This series is brought to you by PIMCO, one of the world's leading fixed income managers. For 50 years, PIMCO has been dedicated to helping millions of investors pursue their objectives regardless of shifting market conditions. At PIMCO, ESG investing is an essential part of their commitment to delivering on their clients' objectives, while at the same time supporting long-term sustainable economic growth globally. And welcome back to the XY Advisor Podcast. I am Fraser Jack, and today kicks off part one of a five-part series that we are doing on ESG investing, ESG portfolios, everything around ESG. Uh, Now, in this particular episode, the first one, we will kick off with a conversation around demand and dynamics. Uh, In the second episode, we'll be talking about the advisor's approach, Uh, everything to do with conversations that you might be having uh, with your clients, but how you should uh, approach this from an advice point of view. In the third episode, we're going to cover off on the uh, the impact style or social change areas within ESG and understanding how they all work and some of the helpful tips and, uh, and hints that you might want to pick up along the way. Uh, in the fourth episode of this series, we're going to be talking about climate change. Uh, obviously, a very topical piece of uh, conversation with your clients at the moment. Uh, or probably will be going forward. Uh, So all sorts of things around climate change. And in the fifth episode, the final episode, we're really going to dive a little bit deeper into the different asset classes. It's very easy to think that we start with uh, with equities uh, in the space, but what are all the other asset classes and how do they work? The voices that you will hear during the series are made up of an all-star panel, starting with Nathan Fradley from Lime Financial Planning and Ethos ESG Software. We then hear from Karen McLeod, Principal Financial Advisor at Ethical Investment Advisors. We move to David Graham, Financial Planner and Investment Specialist at Story Wealth Management. And we also hear from Michelle Brisbane and Claudia Ma from Ethical Investment Services in Melbourne. And rounding out the episodes is Grover Berthay, Head of the ESG Portfolio Management from PIMCO in the United States. So let's kick off this series with a discussion around demand and dynamics for ESG investment advice. Nathan Fradley, welcome to this very first episode where we're talking around all things to do with uh, ESG and investing. And in this particular episode, we're talking about the demand and dynamics. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. Now, of course, you are many things within the uh, within the industry and the profession around uh, ESG. You you're an advisor. You've got uh, software. You're uh, you chair the uh, you created essentially the XY Ethics Committee, and of course, you're uh, you're a certified ethical um, investment advisor with the RIAA. Yep. Yep, I'm fairly involved in this space. <laughs> you are. You are. You're our go-to person, and not to mention the fact that you are the host of a podcast yourself. Yeah, good for the B podcast, which is uh, not a long time coming at all, which is a long time wanting. Yeah. So it's been uh, it's been great to go through that and, and get that live. 
Brilliant. Now, thank you for coming on. Now, we're talking about demand and dynamics in this episode because uh, there's a lot of there is obviously or you are you are obviously seeing a lot of demand in the space. Yeah, I think it's look obviously with my you know marketing and, and branding and everything. A lot of people come to me wanting ethical investment advice, but just as many, if not more, people don't know that it exists. And when you start having that conversation. I think it really opens up opportunity and possibility, and there's more of the, the more of the clients I've worked with haven't come to me for it and have been really happy with that outcome as well. Yeah. Okay. So this is really interesting. So there's um, there's people that want it, and then there's people that don't know they want it, but then they want it when they say no about it. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, the you know obviously with with marketing and what have you they'll come to me and say you were looking for an ethical portfolio or they'll look for a financial advisor see on my website that i do work in this space and and it'll come up but i think for most of the clients that i work with as you go through the financial planning process and you start talking preferences and and priorities of products and, and approaches to investing and risk profiling you start chatting about what they want to see with their money and the the, the point of I didn't know we could do that, always comes up. Um, I'm yet to have a no from talking to people about it. Very levels of engagement. Um, Often price is a driver of that, not so much performance because it's not an issue, but a a high-impact portfolio has a higher ICR in general. So we might wind back some of the the more impact-oriented investments and, and chase a slightly lower fee approach, but... Yeah, I'm finding that clients of, of all ages, particularly most of my retiree clients, which is most of my work, is um, are really engaged with it and for different reasons. Yeah, so um, I'm going to get into the de- demographics in, in a second because uh, I'm interested to know what different demographics think or, or, or feel about this particular style of investing. Um, but before we do that, is do you think that because you're so passionate about this field that that might um, that just comes through and 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 influence the you know the the clients their potential clients into also wanting to be passionate about it. I, I think there's definitely an advantage in having a huge excitement around that. Um, no different to if a particular you know advisor is great at property advice or share advice, and and because that's their expertise, it would create a sense of confidence from the client's perspective, a sense of trust to say, well, this person knows what they're doing here. They're a professional and they're clearly very knowledgeable of this. So I'm more inclined to go down that path. And I I absolutely acknowledge that, that if I was sort of fumbling my way through the conversation, I imagine it might not go that way as often. Um, It's also, I think, a, a pure belief from my perspective that, you know, my darker screen portfolio outperforms any other portfolio I've seen so far. So, be able to have that conversation with them and show it to them and have clients that are already in that space um, and talk them through that like any other advice. You give confidence through social proof. So I have other clients that have done this, but we've managed to get them the fees like this or, yep, this is the impacts it can have and this is the the outcomes. And and through that conversation, you know, I've, you explain, I've got clients that want their kids to be – one client wants their kids to be proud of his portfolio. They're both really into sustainability. I've got other ones that want to leave a better world. I've got other ones that always wish they could do something like this, um, whether there's, there's political views and personal views and health and fitness views, and and everyone has different causes that they care about. Um, but I think the interesting thing about the ESG space is everyone cares about something, no matter where they are on the political spectrum, no matter where they are on the age spectrum. 
Um, it's how much they care about that versus the other factors of the product drive the advice. Yeah, it's really interesting. You mentioned the word pride as, as one of the emotions or feelings that comes up when people are investing in the space and to be able to then, um, you know, talk to their friends at the barbecue, I like to use that term, uh, you know, you talk to their friends at the barbecue around what that means to them uh, to be invested there. That's probably the, one of the biggest parts of the marketing. You know, we, we, you mentioned marketing and the conversations that you're having uh, and there's obviously there's marketing coming out and we'll get to it later, but there's a bit of greenwashing coming out. But uh, that conversation between client and client at the barbecue is pretty important yeah and i think particularly when you get someone who's younger who you 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 work through their portfolio and you provide them an ethical outcome and then you get their parents coming back who've already got an advisor elsewhere elsewhere that came across to do that um you know i think that's the proof in that that um by having that point of differentiation um, which i hope don't exist within the next five years i hope everyone will do this but I think that creates a lot more value. And I also think it's it's not something you can just index as well. So when it comes to product recommendations, you know, if, if someone comes to me and says, I've got a hundred grand, I want to invest it. They could just as easily do some research and, and put that in a diversified index product themselves fairly easily and don't really need advice. But if they want to navigate the nuances of the ethical investment world, navigate the greenwashing to know what they're going into is is actually genuine and and understand the ins and outs of that portfolio they need an advisor for that so i think it brings us back into the frame in that respect is creating a lot more value um and i've I've said it before but i think it's the rise of the active manager again because uh, you know while there's some great index products out there in this space there's also some, some really poor ones that represent themselves um much much but more than they are and the you know if you look at the the active managers it's not just about their holdings anymore it's about their engagement it's about how they go out to a company and say hey we'll invest more with you but we want you to change your steel production to be you know a lower lower carbon or you've got some supply chain issues here's how you can fix that or address that or you something as simple as we've looked through your diversity and inclusion um within your hiring and it's not very diverse and not very inclusive and you're having supply um, um, labor issues, why don't you make these changes? And what we're seeing with most managers and most companies is that the companies are welcoming this engagement. They're welcoming that coming across. So that active manager um, approach, I think it's it's 61% of um, uh, earnings calls uh, based on some research done by ethical partners, um, 61% of earnings calls in 2021 in, um, included ESG as a topic. Uh, it was 1% or less than 1% in 2019 based off some research by PIMCO. So companies want that. Active managers can can add that value. And then through that, um, clients get a greater sense of, of progress because it's not just about exclusion. It's about progress and genuine progress. And you can really read through that. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, that's an incredible growth stats that are, that are coming out there. You mentioned the rise of the the active manager in the within the funds. Is it also the rise of the active advisor? Absolutely. I think, you know, we we saw a period, you know, maybe ten or so years ago where it was all high ICR active funds, and then Vanguard really came through and, and shook that up, and and obviously then um, State Street and, and iShares from BlackRock and. And it was really hard to justify for a lot of funds out there that perform sub-market at a higher fee to use them. And so a lot of advisors with the, with the right with the right view 
looked at it and said, well, what's, why would I charge my client? Why would my client pay more for this when they get better here? And I think that then created a more passive environment around the, um, the advisor's investment advice because they went, we'll just put you in an index product and away we go. Um, what they don't know is that it particularly index product might have over 200 uh, fossil fuel companies now. Um, that it, it may have very low engagement or low voting um, or it may vote with manager also with um with uh, management every time which is actually potentially more damaging um so they need the advisor needs to be more engaged and can bring back some of those investment dynamics and investment conversations with their clients that perhaps we've removed from our value add over the last few years because you know that the index approach was was so much more um favorable i think for clients yeah looking back of course yeah, of course. <laughs> it's it's always one of those scenarios, isn't it? You know, past performance, but but we we digress. Uh, now, talk to us about um, you mentioned both younger younger clients as well as retirees. Uh, are there any demographics here, or is this a you know, for everybody? Um, I think I think people tend to throw it in the millennial bucket, and I think anyone who does that still thinks millennials are twenty five years old, um, and millennials are forty now. And uh, they've got plenty of wealth and capability and desire for advice. But I think, I, I don't think ethical ESG responsible investing is limited to younger demographics. Um, I think their parents and their parents' parents, you know, my oldest ESG client is 75 uh, and they paid a higher fee. They came in and said, our son says we should use an index product, low cost, but we want to explore the options, get proper advice. I compared that to the higher fee and a couple of different options, and they came out with the darkest green because of the social impact. Um, so I don't think it's particularly demographically limited. I think I, I tend to see um, women more engaged on this, generally speaking, than than men. But at the same time, um, I think my client base is is more leaning that way. So that's probably just a factor of of demographic of my client base. But um, yeah, there's very rarely once if you can bring it up the right way. I think is the trap. Um, if you bring it up the right way um, and engage with it like you would talking through asset classes, you know, this is how Australian shares work. This is how international shares work. This is infrastructure and why it's important. And if you can engage in the same kind of manner, you're educating clients. And if you educate the clients, they can make the informed decision. You're not trying to pitch any bias or anything. It's about them coming to the table and saying, yes, that's important and that's more important or less important than this. Demographically, that's across all age groups, all demographics. Wonderful. Thanks, Nathan, for being part of this episode. We'll catch you very shortly. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Karen McLeod. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Wonderful to have you. Now, of course, you're from Ethical Investment Advisors. Give us, uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Um, I'm a financial advisor there based in Brisbane. We look after clients across the country that want to invest their money in an ethical or responsible manner. So usually we find we're um, attracting clients that have a a social conscience. So they might be particularly interested in climate change or social issues. And importantly, obviously, they want to make a good return on their monies. So I've been doing that um, exclusively um, for more than 12 years now. And I sort of began doing that Ah, quite a while ago, obviously, now, and I went to see the Al Gore movie, An Inconvenient Truth, and then when I got back to my desk, I sort of started realising that I had a lot of clients in companies that I felt were actually harming the planets, um, whether they be tobacco or oil and gas or junk foods, 
and started to realise that I could actually start looking after my clients in a different way by setting up their portfolios for a better future. And that's when I started looking into responsible investment. And I went to a conference at the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia in Sydney one year. So that conference is held every year for those that are interested. Um, And upon attending that conference, I realised that this was more than just, you know, a small niche or a fad. This was like a, a really growing sector that was really, I thought, going to position portfolios really well for the future for my clients. And obviously, as we were well aware at that time, that climate change was, you know, accelerating. So at that point, I decided that that's what I would specialize in. And I have done so ever since. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not just a, a growing, you know, it's not just a fad. It's definitely a, a huge part of uh, an advisor's role these days is to bring these, this conversation to their clients. Hmm. Yes, it is. I think, and I think clients, um, they do want your guidance and expertise in this area because, um, you know, you are their point of trust. So, you know, if something was going to negatively impact their returns, of course, they would be relying on you um, to guide them and to prevent any issues. So, I suppose when we think about foresee and our best interest duty you know, where does that code of ethics lead us? And I I would argue that it leads us to say that we really need to think of ourselves as stewards of our clients' capital in how we allocate that. And so it's not, you know, it's no longer really appropriate to say that they haven't asked about it. It's more really for you to position the portfolio to make sure that proactively you're preventing any downside risk And I think also the upside of engaging on these topics is that you might find that they really do have some values-based ideas around where they'd prefer to make a return and how meaningfully um, they could invest their capital because there's no shortage of investment products these days that they can can look at. So you could really be that catalyst and also get um, a closer relationship to your client as they talk about their values yeah, value values based decision making, as you just mentioned, there is is really important for the, like you said, the client taking ownership in those decisions and those the, the choices. It is, and it's also clients. You know, we all have a day job, mostly the clients that we look after, or they've all um, they have experience in being a global citizen, so they realise that you know they don't want to contribute to things like water scarcity because they've travelled overseas, or they don't want to contribute to plastics in the oceans because they've swum in beaches in Bali that have been full of plastic. So when you think about it from um, a real-life perspective, clients are actually have eyes wide open on these topics and they're just struggling with how they connect what they see as problems for the planet, pardon me, and with their money. And that's where you can be really a, such a powerful conduit in connecting um their money and their capital with solutions. So that's really, I think, where you could view your role. Um, And as I said before, I think there's increasing um, regulatory impacts really on advisors to to understand what these risks are and what the opportunities are for their clients, both in terms of the code of ethics and then stewardship, as well as There's a lot of other really great bodies like Australia's released their roadmap for sustainable finance last year. So as as a sector, the Australian economy is looking at how we can innovate to basically ensure that our sustainable, our our finance industry, I suppose, continues to be 
um, world leading and also more sustainable. So every country around the world the, uh, pretty much has developed a roadmap. So it sort of aligns with what's happening with COP26. Um, and there's increasing requirements, I suppose, on accountants as well to account for financial disclosures, account for um, nature in how they disclose. So it's important that you understand that I think it's something like half of the world's GDP is basically attributed to extracting items from nature. So it's not like we're conducting business in a vacuum. So most of the businesses that clients are investing in are relying on natural inputs to survive. And if those natural inputs are not sustainable, um, then those businesses will not survive. So that's an important um, correlation. It's not just a nice to have. This is actually um, you know, vital basically for the, the existence of um, the economy going forward. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Now, you mentioned increasing regulatory, regulatory impacts on advisors and we sort of touched on the regulatory impact on companies coming down the road as we, as we you know, strive for those net zero targets. Um, how, how do you see the, the um, investors adding to that conversation? Like obviously there's been – this seems to be quite a popular – uh, segment for investors to be having the conversation with, but how do you see investors driving that um, change in businesses uh, from one end, whilst um, whilst come you know the legislation's driving it from the other? Yeah, sure. I mean, you only have to look at like hydrogen stocks. Like when the government announced that they were going to back hydrogen as a key pillar, they've all rallied. You know, like it's investors vote with their feet, so they will support sectors which they believe. Um, like other key sectors that are receiving a lot of support at the moment, as you like listeners would probably nod and go, oh, yeah, of course, is like electric vehicles, battery, lithium, um, mining, for example, anything that's going towards basically setting us up for a more sustainable and low-carbon future is being well supported by the market. So clients are pretty aware of that. So you need to sort of just keep in mind well, what's contained in the portfolios that we're suggesting for them, if they've actually requested investments that are going to be either solving planetary issues um, or wanting to invest in opportunities such as electrification of everything, which is a key pillar for the Australian energy market operator, which is a government authority, for example, and clients want to support that, um, well, what does that mean if they're owning a large company that's still or a large bank that's still heavily financing fossil fuels? Like is that positioning them well? Are they comfortable with that? Would they prefer to be in something that's um, maybe more aligned with the new regulations and the new um, government's view on where we're heading for 2050? Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's there's more than just I think what you – the government themselves at a top level is announcing. Like I was mentioning before, the task force for financial-related disclosures and nature-related disclosures are, you know, they're all part of the G7 finance ministers um, and they've all endorsed these task force for nature-related disclosures. So there's, there's lots coming for corporates that they're having to juggle. Um, you might, I think as an advisor, you might not be aware behind the scenes of what what corporates are having to do these days in order to explain to shareholders how they're positioning themselves as we race towards net zero. But it's it's quite important because there are definitely some market leaders and then others that are quite behind the eight ball or have a lot of work to do. 
Um, but you're seeing quite big steps. Like I think the HP Billiton, they just sold another two coal mines last week. And then, of course, I've got just the one remaining. So even large traditional fossil fuel companies are really trying to transition themselves quickly at the moment. So, yeah. yeah. Um, now, obviously, it, it's, in the, it's in the name of your business. Um, you probably had a constant demand, but are you seeing a growth uh, in that demand, supply and demand compensation with regards to, you know, uh, more people wanting to, you know, explore this? Consumers? Yes, it definitely has been a growing trend. Um, never higher probably than just when the bushfires were occurring at the end of 2019 and the start of 2020. Um, and I think that's been, you know, beyond, you know, um, our phone or our email inquiries, definitely across the board, a lot of sustainability um, specialists, both advisors and fund managers have said they noticed, you know, a real um, upswing then. And that came from people's heightened awareness that climate change is really here and now and impacting um, their day-to-day way of life and how will that impact their money and how can they position their portfolios so that um, when these um, large uh, weather events occur, who will that impact um, wanting to minimise any risk and also to be a part of the solution more than anything. Um, in terms of figures, I've got some here from Morningstar and they estimated that there was a 21% increase um, to the second quarter of 2020 from the 30th of June 2019 in retail assets invested in sustainable investments. And that was up to $19.9 billion. And global money invested in ESG assets has soared to over US $100 trillion during the pandemic. So it's vital that advisors really listen to what investors are wanting and then skill up on how they can deliver it. Um, the other quote that I'll take is from a consumer survey done in 2020 by the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, which advisors obviously welcome to join. And they found some staggering expectations and demands among Australian investors. So this is all random investors that they surveyed, not just my clients or equivalent, but a staggering 86% of Australians said in the survey that they believed it was important for their financial advisor to ask them about their interests and their values in relation to their investments. So like one in eight, sorry, eight, you know, 86% is, is a lot. And then even more critically, a further 86% expected their super or other investments to be invested responsibly and ethically. So there is definitely demand and, and certainly expectation from clients um, for their advisor to give them advice in this area. I think the thing that's most interesting, though, is what the clients were really wanting to focus on. So they also asked, when you go onto the Responsible Investment website, you can see, you can have, a, like, there's a tool there where you can start looking at, you know, I want to screen in X or Y, so human rights, fossil fuels, tobacco, alcohol, and the thing that most um, Australian investors wish to screen is um, not the thing that most fund managers are delivering. So, in fact, the thing that most fund managers are delivering is like an exclusion on, for example, on tobacco, but most clients are actually well beyond that. They're, they're actually looking at other topics now. And the topics were they're really wanting to exclude fossil fuels, um, again, with that climate change issue in mind, but there's a complete misalignment there. 
um, because investment managers were really just focusing on tobacco and controversial weapons, but most investors really wanted to focus on excluding fossil fuels closely followed by human rights issues. So it's hard for advisors, obviously, to get cut through, cut through, I should say, with um, fund managers if they they aren't really delivering what the clients are after. But I, I should point out that in recent years, we've seen a dramatic change in the delivery of funds in this country, both from overseas and obviously um, innovation domestically, that is aligning with what consumers are after. So you need to really do your homework. Some very interesting stats there and understanding. I I guess it sort of sets out the where we are in the sector too with how new a lot of these fund managers are still catching up to the the demand. Most definitely. Um, But the good thing is that the more they hear it from you, the more receptive they are to obviously delivering solutions that are going to meet the needs of your clients. So um, it's really up to all of us, um, you know, as stewards for our clients' capital to articulate those needs to the fund managers or the, um, you know, ETF issuers or whoever it might be that you use or to your um, dealer group to explain that, in fact, what my client is seeking can't be achieved with this fund for these reasons. Karen, thanks so much for coming on this episode. Really appreciate it. We look forward to catching you in the next next part of this series, which we'll be talking about the advisor's approach. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Fraser. Thanks for joining us, David Graham. Thanks for having me, Fraser. Fantastic to have you along from Story Wealth Management. Do you want to give the uh, listeners a quick overview of you at the moment? Sure. Um, I'm one of the uh, uh, senior advisors in uh, Story Wealth. There's uh, four senior advisors, including my wife, Anne, who actually runs the joint as well. Uh, We have a couple of associates and support staff. Um, Anne started this business uh, about 20 years ago in an accounting firm, and we took it out of the accounting firm and partnered up with some other people uh, in about 2016, 2017, uh, and been running our own show ever since. Wonderful. And you are the, uh, the the CIO of the business. Yeah, it's um, something which has developed over time. Um, Anne and I have been working together in the business since 2007 um, and through 2008, 2009, we kind of decided to take the investment side on ourselves, um, having been somewhat disappointed about uh, you know what we were being given by a licensee at the time. Uh, we thought if we we're going to go die by the sword, we may as well uh, be part of forging that sword. So uh, um, it happened that it was my interest anyway. I had a background in foreign exchange markets before this uh, this gig. And um, yeah, and I, I kind of kept studying. And the more I read about it, the more I wanted to learn. So I did a master's, did the same accreditation and um, by default became the investment person. Yep. So that makes you the, uh, the certified financial analyst. Is that correct? So that's the same as the Certified Investment Management Analyst accreditation. Yes. Um, There's a CFP separate to that, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for chatting to us today. Now, we are talking about uh, demand and dynamics uh, in and around the ESG space. Uh, It seems like a pretty uh, popular topic at the moment. And and tell us about uh, your thoughts on how this has come to be. Mm, It it is popular at the moment. And one thing that makes us wary in investment circles is anything that's fashionable or too popular. Um, these things often, you know, um, go up in a, in, a, in, a, in in smoke fairly quickly. Um, so we've been very circumspect about this. Um, part part of our investment philosophy from the start has been about uh, 
quality investment. It's about, it's about getting clients through the, the bad times, talking about, um, let's say, a, a stock like CBA during the, the, um, the GFC uh, went down to $25 but rebounded and we, you know, the idea was to get people comfortable that they can stick with something which is a quality investment uh, and not worry too much about the downside. So yeah, we, we know we know from research that uh, people are, are, are twice twice as likely to uh, panic in downturns rather than enjoy the upside. So we, we manage that downside. So the sustainability side of this was kind of a natural extension to that in, if you like, a risk management tool saying, well, if we can by definition, have a portfolio which is sustainable, and however you describe that, um, that fits into that quality niche we were talking about, and that's um, behaviour management uh, for clients during those inevitable downturns. Yeah, this is a really int- very interesting point about human behaviour and sustainability, and the sustainability of keeping the uh, you know the, keeping their clients accountable for keeping their policies or keeping their policy, keeping their their portfolios intact, uh, a huge part of what an advisor does. Yeah, and it's always the hard part. I had a conversation this morning with a client, um, clearly out of the rebound uh, from last year's downturn, returns look pretty good. Um, but I, I said to them, I don't want any credit for that because, you know, you're, you're going to kill me on the downside if you get me credit for this. So, um, you know, we know that asset allocation is the main driver of returns, um, but getting people comfortable with that volatility means building in, I think, some uh, some airbags um, like quality investments and like sustainability and, and from our perspective when we talk about um, uh, sustainable investing it, it comes down to a, a fairly simple soundbite is that uh, if it's not sustainable what is it it's unsustainable yep yeah it's a very very good soundbite well, yeah absolutely if it's not if it's not sustainable uh, not something we want to, we want to look at um, so how has the demand been from the clients or consumer point of view i mean obviously it's, there's one thing for you to to bring this um philosophy to um to the conversation but uh, like what's the demand been from your point of view from people coming in so so until relatively recently i'm talking about the past five years it's been pretty light on actually and i don't think people were that aware of it we had a, a small group of clients who were always very aware and uh, you know, out five years ago, we, we kind of struggled to build a complete portfolio for them um, that could meet all the, the criteria they had. Um, and I guess it's been, uh, we, we've seen this upwelling of interest um, more generally just in the media, in, in financial markets generally. Uh, and we took a, a decision probably two years ago now to uh, say, well, maybe this should be our default. So we've kind of gone the other way and said, instead of moving with the demand, saying, well, maybe this should be our starting point. And if if you don't want um, sustainability for whatever reasons you have, then uh, we'll go to plan B. But um, by setting it up as a default, again, as I was saying before, it fits into that narrative we've had about, um, you know, uh, quality investments and moving into sustainability. So it becomes an argument about um, not why sustainable, but why not. Yeah, very, very interesting uh, mindset shift that, isn't it? Then uh, then, uh, when you're talking with the clients, the, the conversation just comes out in a different way. It does. And part, part of our um, ability to do that as well um, comes from the fact that uh, we became self-licensed a couple of years ago as well. So we, we also um, um, had a broader uh, ability to write our own um, narrative. Yep, a little bit more, um, a little bit more control over what you, uh, what you can do and what you can say. Yep, absolutely. 
Um, so as this is as this journey is taking place for you, how, how have the clients' uh, attitudes or, or opinions changed over that time? As you're sort of you're changing the conversation slightly, it, it's a um, it, it's a work in progress still. So um, a lot of our clients are uh, relatively mature, if I can put it that way, uh, and a lot of them have been with us for a long time and are very comfortable with where we are from a portfolio perspective. So um, th- this comes across as a relatively radical change to, to some of them. Uh, and so we're having the conversation and, and in, in, in part easing them into it, uh, again, using that um, sustainability narrative as much as being about economic sustainability as, um, you know, saving the planet. So, you know, one or two clients have, have been sceptical, but um, it, it's really um, – once we start them on this journey and they start, we start embedding that, that principle, a very broad principle of sustainability, um, there's very little pushback. And occasionally, well, quite often actually, we're quite a surprise. Clients say, oh, we, why weren't you doing this before? Um, now, our, our, main, our main response to that is that we didn't have the capacity to build a full portfolio um, because we didn't have the the, uh, um, the uh, components to put together in, in a you know, what we think is a, is a um, diversified portfolio as, as with the standard portfolio. So, uh, yeah, it, it's really interesting how that um, conversation gets some momentum once you, um, you know, kind of uh, stick the pin in a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, there's that, uh, you know, supply and d- demand dynamics as well at play where, you know, the more people that are interested now as as the – as the you know, as as everything grows, there's going to be more of things available, and therefore you're able to, uh, you know, look. It's not just one or two, you know, narrow markets. You actually got a full market to choose from. Yeah, indeed, indeed, and you know, p- part of that as well has been the, the research space has certainly opened up uh, in this area as well. So again, whether it's uh, you know push from fund managers or pull from from client demand, um, the researchers have kind of got on board and started. Uh, um, doing specific uh, research about sustainability of a particular investment um, uh, and, and I guess encouraged uh, managers to um, put their flag in the sand as well about, about where they stand on that spectrum. So it, it's been quite interesting and, and the momentum behind over the past 12 months has been um, fairly staggering. So f- from our perspective, it, it feels it feels like a structural change in both investment markets and economies more broadly. So when we go back to the question of, you know, it becoming fashionable and um, clients being sceptical about, oh, are you just kind of getting on the bandwagon? Um, you know, we, we do phrase it in a, in a, in a longer term, um, this is the world going forward rather than, um, you know, keep doing what we were doing before. Yes, it might be the bandwagon, but it's, it's the only wagon. <laughs> Tell me about uh, demographics. Are there any particular demographics that are, that are embracing or and and on the other side of that, are there anyone? Is there any demographics that you find it difficult to or don't want to get involved? Um, no, it's fairly broad. Um, I, I think, uh, in very general terms, uh, uh, younger demographic is, is um, more attuned to it. Um, I, I guess the older we get, the more conservative we get, and uh, it, it's harder to budge some of those people. But having said that, some of the some of them surprise us as well. It's always interesting, isn't it? There's always something in a conversation that's, that piques somebody's uh, value chain, and uh, and, uh, and you know whether it's uh, you know the, the the world that they're leaving behind for their grandkids or or whatever it might be. Yeah, well, yeah, that, that's true. But also on that, um, you know, self interest isn't far from the surface in most of these conversations, and you know, you, you drill down into into clients' um, motivations, um, and you know, at the end of the day, say, so, yeah, we're all on board about this. Um, 
but what are the tax consequences? What are the uh, what are the uh, uh, cost implications? All that sort of stuff. So so people do kind of. Um, yeah, I'm happy to save the world, but what it's going to cost me kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, everyone seems to have a, a, a threshold um, where they, they kind of um, start to get a bit nervous. Yeah. David, thanks so much for catching up in this particular episode. Uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation with you about that exact thing uh, when we talk about the advisor's approach in the next episode. Thank you. Thank you and welcome to this episode, Michelle and Claudia. Hi, Fraser. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you both here on this particular episode, or on all the episodes, actually. Uh, Michelle, do you want to do a quick intro? Sure. So my name is Michelle Brisbane. I am the CEO at Ethical Investment Services. We're a financial planning practice based in Melbourne, but we have clients all over Australia. I've been here for 22 years in this specialist space, and the actual business has been running since the late 80s, which sounds like eons ago now, but um, we've been in the ethical space all this time, even before ethical investments were sexy. So we've seen a huge growth in the demand and the understanding and appreciation of ethical investments in the last few years. We used to be a little bit like the unusual people in the finance industry, but now we are the sexy people. <laughs> and I've got Claudia here. Claudia? Hi, I'm Claudia. Um, so I've been with Ethical Investments for over seven years um, and I help head up the um, investment committee where we discuss um, the stocks and investment selection uh, funds um, together with uh, the advisors. Yeah, thank you both for joining us. Now, wonderful business. Uh, Claudia, of course, you're, a, you're an analyst. You, you work mostly in the investment space. Uh, and Michelle, you're one of four advisors in that business. And I love the way that you uh, mentioned that fact that, you know, you were, you were around before it was sexy and now it's all, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hot topic. Uh, where did you get that foresight? Well, it, it was started originally really by, um, well, a couple of people. Sid Spindler, who was a Democrat's operator and he had a partner, George Butman, they started it, but then they went more into the politics side in the early 90s. And then the real driver was Janice Carpenter originally in the 90s. So she built it up and, and they always had the the uh, ethical philosophy. And then I joined in 1999. So I've been here from last century, let's say, and um, I've just seen it grow massively. It continues to grow and we're, we're constantly inundated with uh, new queries, new clients and it's a great space to be in. Yeah, wonderful. And before we get into the dynamics around the demand and the dynamics, what drew you to the business in the first place? I answered an ad after I'd finished my business degree, which was my second degree, and it was a, a boutique financial planning operation. I didn't really know what that was because I was new into finance then, but I liked the word boutique. So I came here and um, really quickly realized that this is a great a great business, a great space to be in. And personally, my philosophy, I suppose I'm a bit of an environmentalist, so the type of operations here in business aligned with my philosophies. Yep. Now, the, the name says it all, the name of the business uh, is a fairly good indicator that for, for clients as they're uh, looking to seek financial advice or they're, or they're coming in or they've been referred, uh, the name of the business, Ethical Investment Services, sort of lets the client know that this is – the type of investing philosophy you have. Uh, tell us about those, uh, the de demand and dynamics around the business. As it, you mentioned, it's been going a long time and obviously it wasn't uh, popular. Um, there might have been some myths around returns that we can d 
debunk later. Uh, but tell us about how that sort of changed over time and, and, and what it's like at the moment. Well, I think originally uh, back in the early days, people used to come and we, there weren't necessarily enough investment options to cover their whole ethical thing. So we used to have a bit of a mix of mainstream and some ethical funds just to get the whole investment mix correct. But these days there, there are plenty of ethical options available and the clients come here expecting that they will get an ethical investment solution for their portfolios. So that's what they want. That's what they come here. And they would be shocked if we didn't provide that. Yeah, as you mentioned, a lot more opportunities now. And, and Claudia, I guess this is where you've you've come into the the fray of things. I've been able to um, help build out that uh, that extensive um, knowledge or that extensive um, you know supply of different uh, opportunities. Yes, yes, it's uh, evolving very quickly. Um, you know, over the last few years, so we're constantly keeping up to see uh, what result is coming out of the market, um, be it from the engineering product engineers or product developers uh, or the companies itself. Yep. And, uh, of course, there's is there a particular demographic of client that's drawn towards towards your business or is this uh, is it is it more of a values-based thing? Uh, we have a, a range of different professions who come here and you could sort of say we could be architects, psychologists, doctors, some teachers, some engineers, but – as most financial planners know, the engineers can be troublesome, <laughs> troublesome clients. We love engineers, but, you know, they try and tell us what we need to know, what we already know. Yeah, so it's really a broad range of professions. And, you know, the clients that come to us generally are pretty sticky. So because we have that values discussion with them and we're aligned in, in, in various ways, they generally hang around unless, um, you know, they buy a house or something. Yeah, fair enough. And and just how do you um, approach that values conversation? What's sort of the, your methodology when it comes to, you know, having that conversation with the client? Well, it's part of the initial client meeting. So we, we do a fairly comprehensive ethical profile with them. So we have a discussion about the sort of things that they want to either avoid or support with their investment money. And then they really rely and trust us to provide that solution for them. And that's where Claudia comes in with the the type of investments that we know that the the clients will like. Yep. And is the demand for your business from uh, people hearing or reading about you, the, some of the stuff that you're doing um, outwardly focused, uh, obviously with, you know, the conversations or, or marketing you might be doing, or, or is it coming from existing clients? How, how are you finding a lot of people are actually approaching your business? Well, I mean, we're, we're fairly well established. We've been operating for a long time now. So there is a bit of, quite a bit of word of mouth and our reputation in the area is, is very good, I have to say. And, um, but there's, we also do advertise and we advertise in, in areas that are aligned with the sort of things that our clients are interested in. And that might be like a conservation magazine or an organic gardener magazine or even, um, Triple R, we advertise on Triple R and, you know, the old hippies that have grown up, you know, same time as, as me, that they listen to Triple R and they're, they're really aligned aligned with, a, with us, it seems. You've managed to find your, your old hippie crew. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Surely it's not just for old hippies though, is it? Uh... No, 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 very and serious professionals. No, no, we, we have, a, a, like I said before, a lot of, well, those old hippies have become serious professionals, it seems, now. 
Yeah, it's an interesting uh, demographic, isn't it? The uh, the you know even the X generation or the old XY generation, but the X generation are all now um, you know uh, of 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 an age where they've um, starting to to gather some serious assets. Yes, exactly. No, no, our clients are very interesting, largely. Like I find them all very interesting, which is great because you meet people that you wouldn't necessarily meet in your day-to-day life and, you know, they're very intelligent people and um, that's why they come to us. Yeah, and it's, it feels to me like there's a bit of a supply and demand equation that's overlying this. You know, the more clients that can be interested or the more consumers that take note, um, obviously when we were recording this, we're in the – uh, in the midst of a of a um, conversation around um, uh, net 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 was it net twenty fifty net zero so, <laughs> net zero twenty fifty um, but uh, look like that's obviously the, a, a reasonably you know um, a topic that's bringing more investors I guess towards this type of investment uh, and I guess the more advisors providing advice in the space the more investors looking to invest. Um, uh, Claudia, the, the more options that are available, or the, or the more that um, that dynamic um, puts a demand on uh, the opportunities that are available. Yes, Fraser. Um, so there's there's been um, I think the type of products that's coming onto market, we're seeing a more thematic focus as well. Um, you know, not just ethically, not just a broad theme, but we're also seeing some with concentrated themes, be it um, a social. Uh, social impact, um, a climate impact, uh, quite targeted. Um, we've also seen, for example, uh, impact bonds come onto market. Uh, they are probably more for wholesale investors, uh, and the government has adopted that from you know, which originally started in the UK. Uh, that program has uh, has been adopted in Australia. We've seen um, these bonds uh, used to in, in invest in um, targeted areas such as. Uh, uh, disadvantaged children or the elderly or the homelessness uh, or or children that has been displaced and are in the interim of entering adulthood. Um, these programs are, um, they're, they're ingenious, uh, a really good way to, to fund. So, so across the spectrum, we are seeing um, um, even the, the level of what we capture as ethical, uh, they're all they're all coming onto market, and and I think it's um I think we're only going to get better from here. Ladies, thank you so much for being part of this episode. We look forward to catching you in the next episode when we're talking about the advisor's approach. Okay, that's been great, Fraser. Thanks, Fraser. Welcome to the conversation, Grover Berthing. Hi, nice to see you, Fraser. Now I've recognised that your accent is a little bit different to mine. Let's have a chat about whereabouts are you from and tell us about uh, what your, your position is at the moment. Sure, sure. I'm happy to be joining you today from, from Southern California, Newport Beach to be specific. Uh, I'm at our headquarters here for PIMCO. We, we are fortunate to be in a, in a lovely area. Uh, it's still, still phenomenal weather. But with that said, uh, much shorter days now with past daylight savings time. Yes, we're the opposite when it comes to seasons. Uh, and tell us about your role at PIMCO. I'm a portfolio manager here at PIMCO. Uh, my specific role is head of ESG portfolio management. I've been at the firm since originally 2012 in a few different roles, uh, including commercial real estate, securitized credit, and now lead our ESG integration and analysis team and work closely with the fund managers on our various ESG dedicated vehicles and strategies. Fantastic. Now, you are the perfect person to talk to uh, on this particular topic that we're covering off on de- demand and dynamics for ESG in portfolios. What are you seeing uh, in the US? Sure. Well, in, in the US, like, like many areas, uh, various clients that we have and various 
counterparties or issuers that we engage with are at different parts of their ESG journey. But but in aggregate, trajectory is is relatively uh, uniform, which is there, there's more appetite, there's more demand for more information. There's more expectation uh, in the marketplace for, for progress on areas, both across environmental, social, and governance as well. Uh, much of that is, is focused on climate. But here in the United States, we also see a significant amount of focus on social issues. And, and there's a desire for, for growth to move from a, a pure investment standpoint or pure shareholder standpoint, pure lender standpoint, to take into account the, the needs and desires of, of the broader stakeholder base. And, and so we're seeing this manifest itself in strategies. We're seeing this manifest itself in the primary market for fixed income um, and increasing in the conversations we have with our, our various peers and clients. You know, this uh, this is uh, not just a US thing and an Australian thing. It's obviously global. There's a lot of stuff going on around the globe. Uh, you say you say increase in more. What what sort what sort of sizable you know increase are we seeing? Is this like uh, I feel like we're in the compound interest calculations and we're hitting up a steep curve. <laughs> Well, there's, there's again, there's, there's sort of the, the distinction between how much capital is moving into the space uh, versus how much discussions and, and how much focus there is on the space, and, and the latter is, is a leading indicator for, for the former. Um, with regards to, to really the best barometer that, that we look at as an active fixed income manager would be ESG labeled bond issuance. That's that's eclipsed. Total outstanding stock of ESG labeled bonds has eclipsed two trillion dollars this year. That that broke through one trillion dollars last year. That trend is likely to continue into next year, and it's a good proxy for for the demand in the marketplace. Uh, another way to frame that would be how much primary issuance is in some sort of ESG form or structure. And over the course of this year, we, we've seen that that figure, depending on how you measure it, somewhere around ten or fifteen percent up from from mid to high single digits last year. And so you're seeing ESG products and structures also take an increasing amount of, of issuance market share. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a crazy. And you know, like as as this goes on over the next couple of years, what uh, what are you thinking that will be? You know, you sort of mentioned up ten or fifteen from single digits. What are you what are you predicting going forward? Well, it's difficult to project because I mean, there's an argument. There's there's two ways that it could play out. Uh, you know, one would be. ESG labels, whether that be in securities, whether that be in funds, continue to grow and take market share. But said, we think that'll be the trend for the next the next several years. But if you talk over the next five or ten years, we can move to a standpoint where that actually becomes the market standard. I mean, maybe some of these labels or some of these categorizations aren't as necessary because it becomes the market default. And there are there are pros and cons to both. Um, for for us as an investor. We certainly want to see, regardless of how you classify it, how you label it, right? We want to see there to be very broad integration across our investment process, across how we measure risks and diligence investment opportunities. And we want to also see progress on these issues with those who we, who we engage with and those we, where we have dialogues. Um, and the exact structure and, and sort of market, market approach which it takes hopefully becomes a little bit less important over time um, as long as the outcomes are, are still in the right in the right direction, which is more control over, over climate, um, more more mindfulness over resource usage and utilization, um, and then more more progress being made on, on social issues, depending on the region or geography. They, they can vary, but generally speaking, more, more progress in those areas and, and seeing that across various parts of the marketplace. Yeah. And do you, do you think the... The discussion or the conversation from a consumer's level, um, uh, you know, so you mentioned they're both they're both driving this up. Is is pushing 
all is ahead, or do you think it's actually happening more from the you know from the lender's point of view or the or the capital point of view? Uh, I think it, it, it's generally speaking, in our view, primarily being driven by by the end user. Uh, and so, for an asset manager like Pimco, that end user is our client. For a company, the end user is is their client. So, yes, we want to, for example, see more progress in in a, a grocer, let's lower, or let's say a retailer having more sustainability in their supply chain and their, and their sourcing of products. And that's something that we encourage with regards to our engagement efforts. But similarly, when, when a consumer walks into their store or their location, they're, they're also increasingly wanting to see sustainable products, sustainable offerings, sustainable options. And so, and, and that's also part of what's driving, you know, the client side for, for, for PIMCO, which is our own client base, uh, is, is, you know, demographics are changing, priorities are changing. And, and all of these themes are, are very, very large and very macro, which is why we think it's, 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 it's here to stay. This is, this is not a short-term trend. There really is a, a sea change in terms of how many different um, end users, clients, consumers view these topics, and that gives it some real durability over time. Yeah, it sounds like you're saying it's more of a direction than a trend. It's not, uh, it's not something that's going to go away. It's something that's going to, as you mentioned, make, become mainstream. Exactly, exactly. That's our view. And, and, that's, and that's a great... Uh, and that's a great change. Um, like I said, they're, they're, again, everyone's in a different part of their respective journey. Um, but the, the benefits of there being progress in these areas from a range of different angles um, is that it, it hopefully drives more, more uh, market conventions, right? It drives more adoption of certain trajectories and frameworks. And, and some of these trends become increasingly uh, universal in terms of how they're measured, which enables also an active manager like PIMCO to, to differentiate ourselves. Yeah, now we've seen uh, obviously a lot of talk and recent um, recent talks. Governments getting together uh, globally to to try and create, uh, you know, targets and, and outcomes, legislation around you know net zero twenty fifty etc. Uh, do you think that the drive from businesses will far outweigh sort of the legislation, uh, you know, requirements? Well, the the private sector certainly has a role to play here, um, and, and it's critical from a capital markets perspective that that we play a role. We do that we do so. Uh, by by engagement efforts, by encouragement of, of our counterparties to make progress in these areas, to make commitments in these areas where appropriate. Um, but the public sector regulators, policymakers have to, to do um, arguably the majority of the work here, right? And when I say majority, you know, I mean more than half. It doesn't mean it's 95 or 99 percent. But ultimately, uh, this, this does have to be uh, an effort to really, really have success where the public sector policymakers play, play a major role. And that's because just the shifts are so significant um, that it's going to, you could do it arguably um, only by the private sector, but it may take too long. Uh, coming out of COP26, there's a significant need that was acknowledged by much of the research leading up to that event and then by much of the discussions during the event about what needs to happen over the next decade, not over the next 50 years. And in order for, for actions to take place over the next decade, um, there really does need to be regulatory and policy support and direction in those efforts. And the private sector can help that, can help drive innovation, can help um, ensure efficient allocation of capital, can help manage risks and identify where there, there, there's potential for obsolescence, for transition risk, for physical risk protect uh, capital on behalf of our, of our clients as a fiduciary to manage these, these trends and these disruptions. But with regards to ultimately achieving some of these very specific goals, particularly with regards to climate, we think the public sector has to play a significant role. Yep. 
Tremendous. Uh, sounds like a uh, sounds like a teamwork team effort to, to be done there. But uh, look, thanks so much for coming on this particular episode where we sort of covered off on demand and dynamics. Uh, I look forward to, to chatting to you when we hit the next episode when we start talking about the advisor's approach to ESG. Excellent. Thank you so much.